called Follow Me through 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. We are looking at uh, these three letters, and John lays it out very clearly to us. Everything that he writes in this letter is in response to false teaching and heresy in the early church. Most likely, the church of Ephesus, which his ministry was known uh, in, in starting and being a part of the church there. But we are going to be in chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 6 tonight. So we'll stop on each verse as we normally do and see what God's Word is going to teach us. For those of you who uh, haven't been with us before or even uh, the fact that we've taken a, a three-week break, it's good to catch back up on things. And so let's, um, let's see what we have learned thus far to sum up the first chapter of First. John. The first few verses, uh, we learned that we've got to experience the message. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus becoming flesh. He wants us to experience the power of the gospel. If you want to have faith, if you want to follow Jesus, the first thing you got to do is come to him to experience him. The second thing in verses 5 through 7, we've got to know the message. So it laid out very clearly, what is this message, this good news that we believe in? Of course, then verses 8 through 10, these are the famous uh, confession. If you confess um, God is faithful to forgive. You've got to confess. You've got to recognize your need for the message. And then the fourth thing we saw in the first two verses of chapter 2, that you've got to believe the message. John laid it out very clearly that uh, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, meaning he took not only... Um, he, he took not only the nails of that cross into uh, his body, he died, but he took on the wrath of God so that you don't have to stand before God fearing punishment, fearing wrath if you find yourself in Christ Jesus. And so tonight we move from confession and belief to obedience. So we've got to obey that message. Now, let's be honest. If it was up to most of us, we would just end this book after verse two of chapter two, right? Like we love uh, the whole, hey, confession, I can do that, right? I can recognize I need, I need God. Um, the whole belief thing, I got that down. Like who doesn't want to have a little faith in something bigger than ourselves? But then John gets real, and we're talking about obedience. We're talking about something more than lip service. So there's a lot of people sitting in pews all across this country and world uh, that when it gets to this part of John, First John, um, they want to they want to back out. Say, oh, don't get pushy. Don't don't expect anything of me. Remember, this is all about Jesus and what He did, right? Like I just I just got to confess. I just got to believe. I got I prayed that prayer at kids camp. Um, but then it gets sticky when we talk about obedience. And you'll see over and over and over, over um, several times through not only First John, but the Gospel of John, uh, John mentions those who know him, those who have a relationship with Jesus. And so tonight the theme is those who know Jesus, obey Jesus. Now I tell you all the time about my three-year-old, uh, Silas, and what our life is like, and the ups and the downs of our relationship with him. We love having him in the house. We love and enjoy our time with him. There are times where he is quiet, and it's nice, and it's sweet. There are times when he is loud, and it's crazy and hectic. There are times where we are high and having fun, and it's just running around the house being crazy. There's times where he's kind of sad, and we have some low times. But in general, if I had to sum up for you, if I had to sum up for you all of the bad stuff about being a parent, <laughs> like it's not, it's not just the health concerns and stuff. If I had to sum up the bad stuff, it all has to do with when he is disobedient. 
when he, when he needs some discipline, when he's crying because he got disciplined by us, when we're crying because he won't accept our discipline, like that is the battle of our relationship. Everything bad can almost be summed up with obedience issues. And all the parents said, amen, right? <laughs> See, when you got obedience issues, you got relationship issues, right? And it's no different with the father uh, in heaven, that when we have obedience issues, we got relationship issues. So you can't just skip past this part. Like, and, and any believer who has tried knows your gut won't allow you. <laughs> it won't allow you to fake it for very long. It won't allow you to come and listen to sermons and sing songs without it being real and hitting you in the heart and you responding in obedience. God has a way of... Uh, making a relationship with him miserable when we start to neglect obedience. And we're going to see why obedience is so important tonight. But I want, to, I want to challenge you as we walk through this. I want to challenge you hypothetically, and this is hypothetically, if the only thing in your relationship with God that showed you're actually in a relationship with God. So let's, let's for a second just kind of take faith aside and belief and trust and all that stuff, or even church attendance. If the only thing tonight that God knew you were his child was based on your level of obedience to the commands of Jesus, what kind of evidence would there be, not just in your lifetime, but even in this week, that you're a follower of Jesus? Like if we just stripped it all the way down, just said it's just about obedience. <laughs> would, you, would you have a life evident that you are a follower of Jesus? Now, uh, that's, a, that's a hard question, but it's one of those ones that can hit you in the heart, even um, though we know there's much more than, than simple obedience. So, with that being said, let's jump on in to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. John says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So right off the bat, we're talking about obedience. First thing we see is obedience comes from experience. Obedience comes from experience. Now I'll connect those dots in just a second, but there's some key words we want to focus on. The first one being and. We always talk about the the buts, but, 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 all through scripture. And. So in verses 1 and 2, remember John was talking about Jesus Christ as our advocate, the propitiation for our sins, and, and these things. That if you fall, if you sin, God has provided Jesus uh, on your behalf to represent you. And so these are great things. We talk about belief. You've got to truly believe that. Do you believe that Jesus has your back? And then there's the big and. And there's more. And there's more. He says, by this we know, the word know is John giving us assurance. Like, do you want to know that you're saved? Like, do you want to have some assurance? The whole book of 1 John is about uh, assurance of salvation. Remember, he tells us, I'm telling you all these things so that you would believe and not sin. He says that in verse 1 of chapter 2. That we have come to know him. Now, the word know here is a little bit different than this know. This know is in relation to assurance so that you can be sure of mind. This know is about a union, right? It's about a relationship. So he's ultimately talking about salvation. But he's talking about an intimate relationship. Now, here's where it turns, all right? And this is where the, the theme for this verse comes from. 
The Greek word for know here actually has this connotation that it is a knowledge that comes from experience. It's a knowledge that comes from experience. So if you want to know that you're saved, that you're found in Christ, that you have come to know him, then like there's going to be an experience that that knowledge is based on. So John's saying, are you ready for this? You're going to have some experience that will let you know that you know that you know that you're saved. So it goes a little bit deeper than just a head knowledge. If we keep, keep meaning obey, his commandments. Now let me ask you this. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus' commandments. How many commandments of Jesus? Like if we were just going to play a game and say, rifle off as many as you can think of. Like, right, this is the core of Christianity. When we say, follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. What does it mean follow? Well, do what he says. Okay, what does he say? How many commands, just off the top of your head? I mean, this, okay, this is the core of our faith. Could you rifle off? Now, if, if you're being honest, some of us feel kind of insecure right now, right? Because we're thinking, well, I mean, I could give some general things. I know that's in Scripture, but I don't know if like, he specifically said that one. But like, and then we think, man, it's kind of hard to actually obey Jesus if we don't know what he actually said. Now, remember, the word became flesh, so what the whole Bible commands is what Jesus commands, right? But in his earthly ministry, he has given us some commands. We're not going to spend a bunch of time talking about this, but let me just give you, this is, you can Google it, you can do a big study yourself, but here's just um, 50 quick things that uh, we know he commands. Now, he commanded his specific disciples, uh, his apostles, in some things that were specific to them, like when he sent out the, the 70 and he gave them instructions. But then most of his commands are for all of his disciples, even us 2,000 years later. So I'll let you guys kind of pass that around. There'll be a bunch of extras, just in case we have revival at cross-training. I'll print it out some more. You never know. You never know. You see, you and I, in general, we don't like to serve, we don't like to obey people that we don't know very well, right? Like, if you think about it, those that we don't know very well that we have to serve or obey, we can do for a short time, just because it's the right thing to do. But over time, like, it'll wear on you. You'll lose your joy in serving them unless you know them a little bit. It doesn't matter if it's uh, your boss, your clientele, or even your spouse. Like, your joy comes uh, when you serve those who are closest to you, those who you know. How many of you have ever worked for someone who um, their headquarters was, like, maybe even a different state? Like, they weren't, they weren't right there with you. And at first, you're like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> Ain't got the big boss man looking over my shoulder. But then... Six months down the road, two years down the road, you find yourself getting frustrated over and over and over because you're like, there's someone making decisions, someone telling us what to do, and we don't even know who they are. We don't know where they are. We never even met them. Like, like that breeds frustration, doesn't it? You see, because obeying someone and being intimately knowledgeable of them or in a relationship with them are hand in hand. And it's no different in our relationship with God. That you obey him because you know it's right, but you also obey him because you have experienced an intimate relationship. You have, you have experienced some healing. You have tasted the goodness of God, and it makes you, it compels you to be obedient. Like, if that's not your motivation, the intimacy that you have with Christ, your obedience won't go very far, right? 
You know, you know it, just, it won't go very far. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Let's, let's play that let's out a little bit. Let's flesh it out. Okay, in Christianity, if you, if you wanted to obey Jesus, just follow his commands, but not actually have an intimate relationship with him, spend time with him, enjoy the presence of God, then I would say, at worst, you're going to be a Pharisee, meaning you got rules, but you don't have a relationship. We know how well that works out. Those are the ones that Jesus is the hardest on in his ministry on earth. At best, you're just going to get burned out. At worst, if you want to obey, but you don't want to invest in a personal relationship with Jesus, if you say, I just want to do what I know the Bible says to do, and I want to keep this just kind of clean and cut, and I want to show up, I want to do my job, and I want to please God, number one, you're missing out because half of the commands revolve around you being in a relationship with him, right, to abide in him. But at best, you're just going to get burnt out and say after a while, like, I can't do this. I'm not getting fed. I'm not getting, I don't have any life in me to be able to obey what he's telling me to. At worst, you'd be a Pharisee. Let's flip it the other side. What if you wanted to have a relationship? Because you know this is popular nowadays, right? In the church, this one's super popular. I just want a relationship with Jesus. But you don't really have much focus on actually obeying what he said. Like people want to be spiritual. And I'll say, oh, I talk to Jesus all the time. I love singing my K-Love songs to him in the car. I love to praise him. I just, I just love it. It's such a spiritual experience to have this intimacy in the presence of God and, you know, just enough theology and church lingo to be able to look like you've got a solid relationship with him. But when it comes to actual life change and obedience, it ain't there. It ain't there. At best, if that's you, at best, your spiritual walk would be stagnant because you can't grow in maturity unless you're actually obedient. Like you could fake it for a little bit. But if you, if you tried to have an intimate relationship without obedience, it just ain't going to go very far. You'd be like, I don't know why I'm growing spiritually. And someone needs to pull you aside and say, well, do you actually do anything he says? I spend time with him every morning in my devotionals. Do you actually do anything else that he says? You're going to be stagnant a lot. At worst, this is scary. At worst, if you try to have an intimate relationship aside from obedience, you're going to find that you're not following the Jesus of the Bible. There's a whole different idea of God completely. Because obedience and an intimate relationship cannot be separated. They can't, they can't be separated. They just go together. You think about Jesus and his ministry on earth. What did he say over and over and over and over in John? He said, I only do what the Father wills. Where the Father is, that's where I want to be. Right? Like everything that he's talking about that makes him intimate with God are revolving around his desire to do what? God's will. <laughs> so his obedience. He was sent by the Father to do something. And it wasn't to hang out and say, I am connecting with the Father today and it is amazing. You guys got to try this. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. He would have never gone to the cross if that was his mindset. He would have never come here if that was his mindset. You might argue, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have to experience Jesus to obey him. My question would be, why is obedience important 
to begin with, right? I mean, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, so you're made perfect before God, you can't use the whole, well, God's perfect argument, so we have to be in order to, well, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, you're good to go, right? So why then in the life of a believer is obedience so important? It's because this, because God's glory doesn't just come from a bunch of robots uh, that we would call Christians just doing good things because they know they should. It's, it's about him healing and transforming you and giving you the desire to want to. That's why he gave humanity free will, to choose. So his glory comes, not in saying do this, but in drawing you and touching you, and loving you, and changing you, so that you're like, I gotta do this, not because I have to, because I want to. Because I want to. You look at, you look at his, his miracles, and his earthly ministry, right? You see the gal who is bleeding for a decade. You see the blind guys that he's healing. You see um, any one of these, you, the lepers. I mean, you go down the line and the beauty and the glory isn't just in the miracle. It's in him telling them, okay, after this, go to the temple, go do this. And they just go do it. They just go do it. Right? Like there's no like, you know what? You don't have so much say in my life to tell me what to do. Like that didn't happen. There's like, what? Yeah, we'll go, we'll go over here. Yeah, we'll, we'll do this. Hey, I don't want you to stay. I don't want you to tell anyone about what I just did. I want you to go over they were healed. They were transformed, and so they wanted to obey. Let me ask you this. What, what's stopping you from obeying some of the things you know Jesus is asking you to do? And, and I would challenge you in this, that if you've got obedience issues, it's probably because you've got experience issues. Like those who are healed, they want to obey the king. So there's some healing left to be done. That's good news, actually. That's good news. He wants to do more in you. Verse 4. Now whoever, so this is kind of a continuation of verse 3. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Second thing we see. You can't fake true obedience. You can't fake true obedience. A couple key words. I know him. Again, this know means a union. Like I, I have an intimate relationship with him, a direct personal relationship. The second one, truth. This is interesting because we know truth is, is doctrine, but we know it's a person. It's Jesus. And so ultimately, again, this is, this is another metaphor for salvation, that the truth is not in you. But this word, this Greek word for truth, it means revelation of God. The revelation of God. In other words, what John's saying is, if you say that you follow Jesus, but you don't actually follow Jesus, <laughs> like if you say your faith is in Jesus, but you don't actually obey Jesus, you don't get it. You miss the boat. If someone tricked you at kids camp 10 years ago and said, just pray this prayer and things are going to be awesome afterwards. And you went and did whatever you wanted in life. And in high school, you rebelled. And after you got married and had kids, you came back to church and you said, I just, I know I've been running far from the Lord and I just, whatever. And you're explaining your relationship with him and it just involves some prayer. But there was never no, there was, there was never obedience after that. Someone's going to say, you missed the boat. <laughs> whatever they told you about praying that prayer wasn't, wasn't right. That's not the whole story of what it means to follow him. 
Why is it so hard to fake true obedience? You see, because when most of us think about obedience, what do we think about? We think about good deeds, right? Let's be honest. We think about doing the right thing. We think about actions. And so you can, you can fake that and trick a bunch of Christians. Like, I've been fooled by that. And on that side, it looks like you're doing the right things. You start going to church. You even serve. You do what the pastor asks you. You jump into a grow group. And every, everything's looking good. But here's the thing about obedience. Again, you look at that list of commands from Jesus. How many of those things are directly tied to heart issues? Things that you and I can't really measure. So if I can't really measure the heart issues, if I can't measure another man's faith, only God knows those things, you might be able to fake it towards other Christians, but you can't fake it to God. You can say, well, I'm not having an affair, but God knows when your eyes have been lusting. You can say, you know what, I'm good with this situation at work, we were angry at each other, whatever, but if your heart is still hating on them, God knows it. So it looks like you're doing the Christian thing and just kind of forgiving and whatnot. But like, again, you can't fake it because he knows your heart. He knows your heart. So it makes this verse so comforting and so scary. You think about those who have egregious sin in their lives, who easily just, they, they kind of fake it from the outside. It's so easy. You say, whoever, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, Right? And you're like, yeah, I know a bunch of people who say that they know him, but they don't know him. We get all self-righteous. And the truth is not in it. But then we think, what about the subtle sin that a lot of us have? It's not so egregious. It's not the murderer. It's not the rapist. But it's the gossiper. It's the one who lusts in their heart. It's the things that ain't no one in the church going to call you out on, more than likely but you know it's there. So you ask yourself, I sinned, I sinned this morning. I sinned, I'm sinning right now. I'm angry at Ryan. Like I'm hating on him. Like, you're like, am I not a Christian? Am I a liar? Is that me? Listen, just in this book alone, verse eight of chapter one, what does John say? If you say that you're without sin, then you deceived yourself. The truth's not in you. In verse 1 of chapter 2, so we're talking just a few verses away, he says, but if any of you sin, you've got an advocate in Christ. I mean, like, John knows we're going to make mistakes. If you say you don't make mistakes, he's saying you're a liar. So, like, you're a liar when you make mistakes, you're a liar if you say you don't make mistakes. Like, what, what is it? When it comes to obedience, it's never been an issue for you and I, scripturally, as to whether we're going to be perfectly obedient. God knows we're not perfectly obedient. He wouldn't send Jesus if we could be perfectly obedient. Doesn't mean you just give up and you're like, well, I'm not going to be obedient at all. But the issue isn't even, are you perfectly obedient? It's not even, do you have an amazing desire? Because let's be honest, sometimes we don't even have a big desire to be obedient. We might know it's right some days and still not be like, ah, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I know I should forgive them, but I don't really have the desire. So then what is it? It's that pursuit. It's that true Christians are going to, they're going to continue on in obedience, 
right? They're not, they're not getting it right every day, but they're going to keep on getting back up. They're going to keep on walking, and they're going to trust that Jesus is the one who has perfect obedience, and thank God we are found in him. But it's hard for you and I because as Christians, as humans, we want it to be cut and dry. We want to be able to look at every person around us and say, either they're not a Christian or they are a Christian. Or me, either I am a Christian or I'm not. Like we want it cut and dry, but it'll never be that cut and dry when, again, I can't know your heart, you can't know my heart. It's going to be hard. We can, we can judge each other's fruit, but, but we, we can't judge each other's root. <laughs> right? we, we don't know what's going on in here. God does. God does. We got a culture that loves to fake Christianity. From the 1950s until even just recently, the last five years, uh, a, one of the top five, ten things um, that probably a secular world would say, if I were to guess, about uh, evangelical Christians in America, I would guess, yeah, they're fake. They're hypocrites. would be like top two or three, right? Yeah, they're fake. They fake it. They do. They, they say one thing and then they do another. Why? Because for a long time in our country, there were cultural benefits to claiming Christianity. How many of you over the age of 30 could ever have pictured, if you grew up in America, going home to your parents and saying, I just wanted to give you a heads up, I'm a Muslim now. Like, would that have gone over well? At your school, at your work? No, because that was not that acceptable culturally until the last 5, 10, 15 years. I would have got you thrown out of the house. Let's just be honest. And culturally, there were benefits to claiming to be a Christian, even when you didn't really believe what Christians believed. Whether it be the persona that you're a pretty good person, if you go to church, all the way to connections that might help you move up in the corporate world. Oh, yeah, hey, that, Bob's a good guy. He's a Christian, right? Yeah, you go to the church over there, right? Instant trust, instant credibility. But guess what? Those cultural benefits, they're gone. <laughs> they're, they're gone. And in the last five years, that's been something that's been stripped away. That if you say you're a Christian now, it's actually the opposite. It's not instant credibility. It's you're still one of those weirdos that fall. Even in the Midwest, it's becoming that way, is it not? No one's like, oh, I want to hire the Christian. It's like, oh, are you going to bring your weird religious beliefs into work? Don't proselytize. Eh, this is going to be weird. Like, that's more of the mindset. Not totally, but it's moving in that direction. And our easy believism of that one prayer wonder, not that, man, I hope some of y'all got saved at kids camp, right? I'm not trying to make fun of that and say that that's not valid completely, but it does lend to a belief that you can simply give God lip service and be good with him, and that has never been the case. Our evangelism in America has gone through 50 years of, um, of insecurity, that if we tell people that, hey, following Jesus really means obedience, that they're not going to want to raise their hand at the crusade. We've gone through uh, a little bit of a laziness in evangelism and say, we'll give them just the good news, but don't ever tell them that there's anything like actually, you know, following Jesus included in following Jesus. Because we want hands raised and prayers prayed. But if we really love each other, we would tell people, you get life, but so much of the life comes from denying yourself, picking up your cross, and actually doing what he says. 
That's the hard kind of evangelism. But you can't fake it. Let me let me tell you. Let me tell you how my Monday morning went. Um, you know, Sunday is always a long day, especially with three services. And Monday morning, I came in six a.m. and I uh, had a meeting at six thirty. And I opened up the doors, and the alarm was beep beep beep. Gives you ten seconds to type in a little passcode before it goes. So I was like, okay, flip on the light, but the light didn't come on. That's weird. So I ran up in the dark and ran up the stairs and I typed in my code and then I went around. It was just pitch black in here. Went around, flipped on another light. It wasn't on. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So then before I know it, the, the young man who I was meeting with, he came in and, and we went down through the basement and through all the breaker boxes and I was looking. I was like, man, nothing's tripped. I don't know what the issue is. He even walked into one room. He said, sounds like water's running. Of course, we're standing there in the pitch black with our iPhone flashlights. I'm like, water running? It's 6.30 in the morning. What? No everything's good, whatever. And so we went to Starbucks and, and we um, had a great conversation. And afterwards, and usually he leaves by eight because he has to go to work. And he, uh, it was getting close to eight. And I said, dude, what, um, what, when are you going to work? Like, he said, no, I don't work today. I got the day off, right? I was like, dude, <laughs> why'd you make me wake up and come in here at six? <laughs> like if we, so I was frustrated with him, but then I came back to the church and I was trying to figure out the whole energy thing. I called West Star. They came out and I'm thinking, oh gosh, who knows how long this is going to take. And after a while, um, they called me about 10 a.m. because I had to go find somewhere else to do my work. And, and, and they, uh, the West Star guy says, hey man, someone pulled your meter. We have vandals and pranksters breaking windows and doing stuff like that on a, not a regular basis, but couple times a year, we'll, we'll have something like that happen. I'm like, oh, gosh, someone, someone pulled our meter. He said, oh, yeah, by the way, someone has your left the faucet on going full bore outside. And I was like, okay, could you please just close that? So for, who knows, 12, 14 hours overnight, that thing was probably going crazy. So we're going to have $400 water bill. So then I come to the church afterwards, and I see these huge ruts because the West Star guy in fixing the meter drove through what was now a small pond in our back over here, and he went through the water and then dug these big ruts. And I'm just looking at the situation. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is Monday morning, and this is what's happening. And I was frustrated. And you know when someone does something like just a vandal does something that just ticks you off. You're like, how could you? Like, you had no idea. And if you did have an idea, that's even worse of how much pain and misery and money this was going to cost. Something simple like turning on a faucet. And, oh, man, I felt so angry inside. I thought, man, just whatever, move on. Of course, as I'm preparing for the sermon, then God says, what's going on in your heart? My God, <laughs> This is like righteousness. This is a holy righteousness, right, for you and your resources. Like, do you forgive the guy who did this, girl who did this, whoever it was? <laughs> do you? <laughs> you see, even for old self-righteous pastor boy, you can't fake it. You can't fake it. God knows what's going on in your heart. And obedience is not just a good deed issue, it's a heart issue. That's why you can't fake it. So let me ask you, um, search your heart. Are you trying to fake some obedience with God? Are you trying to look good on the outside, but you know your relationship with him is a mess? And there's ruts. (laughs) 
going right through it. Because you can't hide your heart with God. First part of verse 5. But whoever, so now this is the contrast, but whoever keeps his word, so obeys what he commands, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This is kind of an interesting verse. Third thing we see is obedience leads to maturity. Obedience doesn't necessarily make you mature, but it shows maturity. It shows maturity. There's one key word here that kind of makes or breaks this whole verse, right? Perfected. Perfected. And maybe your translation says complete or mature, but that's what the word perfected means. It means the love of God is completed. The love of God is uh, matured in you. It's come to its fruition. It's come to its end um, goal in you. So what does this mean? Does this mean, uh, of course, one of two things? In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. Does that mean God's love for us is perfected? In which you would think, well, isn't God's love already perfect, right? Or does it mean our love for him is perfected, right? Now, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that God can't love you unless you're perfectly obedient, right? Because we know via context, John ain't saying that. He's already said, we, we all sin, we, all, we make mistakes, right? If that was the case, he couldn't love any human outside of when Jesus became human. But the answer as to whether this is referring to God's love for us or our love for him, scholars have gone back and forth over and over and over and over and over. And to be honest, there's enough leeway that it could be both. It could be both. Now, how could it be both? Well, it could be both in that, number one, if it's God's love for us, we recognize obedience Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Obedience is a sign that God's love has done what ultimately it hoped to do. It penetrated your heart, your soul. It gave you a new heart. And now it's moving on to bless others. Like it is is a good thing that God has not only done something to you, but he's doing it through you. Obedience is showing that the end goal of God's love for us was to change us, to make us want to obey him. It could be also, on the flip side, that our love for him is perfected. That our love for him is perfected. You see, our love for him is best shown when we deny ourselves and we actually do what he says. God's love achieves its purpose when we obey, when we love others. You ever finished a project and um, knew it was almost complete, but didn't quite feel like it was completed until it blessed someone else? Here's what I mean. Over Christmas break, um, we had all kinds of projects around the house. I took several days off work after Christmas and uh, between New Year's and Christmas and New Year's. And we had a laundry list of things to do. We, we had to do everything from small stuff like hanging house numbers to putting on uh, window well coverings outside to um, painting this bathroom that we have to putting hardware on cabinets to um, <coughs> excuse me, hanging pictures, all kinds of things. 
But the one thing that I had as kind of my top project was to install some under-the-cabinet lighting. Now, I hate plumbing and electricity, <laughs> as you guys know from the previous story. But um, I, I, I didn't want to jump into this project because I thought, man, I don't want to open something that I can't, I can't do. But luckily, I have a brother-in-law who does some of this stuff, and he helped me um, do it. And since he's my tech director and he's sitting in the sound booth, I'd easily wrangled him in to help with my personal projects. But he came over, and um, we put this under-cabinet lighting up, and it was uh, cheap, and it was great, and it was awesome. And it took several hours, but he soldered a whole bunch of stuff, and, man, it was, it was good. We were cleaning things up, and it looked like the project was over. But there was one part like a key, key part of any good project. And it was that Tara hadn't seen it yet. Because <laughs> like I can think all day long, yeah, I think this thing's completed. But until she sees it, it ain't official. And I, I saw her, she walked into the kitchen. She didn't know I'm throwing this picture up there. But she's in there enjoying it, peeling something. Uh, who knows what she's doing uh, I should have asked her permission before I threw this on. But I, I remember the joy that came um, knowing not only is this completed, but now it's really completed because she's enjoying it. And, and that's what happens with obedience. Is when you are prompted by God, when he has changed your life, when he has healed you, and you find yourself doing what he says, and so many of his commands are in relation to what? Other people? To love one another? To forgive one another? These things that are very impactful, not only in your own life, but for those around you. God's like, yes, that's what my love was sent to do. Was to not just, again, touch you, to go to you, but to work through you, to bless others. That's what makes it mature. That's what completes my love for you. Let me ask you this, um, as we move on to the last verse. Is there something that God has healed in you, something that he has transformed you in, that he wants to flow through you, right? Maybe you've got a testimony that you don't think is a very good testimony, but it's still a testimony. And you've hesitated reaching out and impacting others with that because you think, It's not a big jailhouse testimony. But there was a time where God really, he worked over here. For you, it's a big deal. But you've never put yourself out there to disciple others, to help others who might be going through the same thing. Maybe you're insecure. Maybe you've talked yourself out of it. Maybe it's something that happened 20 years ago. Maybe it's something that's happening this week. And you think, well, I can't testify to it because I'm not even 100% through it. But God, in his sovereignty, is saying, every single thing I do to you, I want to do through you. If you want your obedience to show maturity, if you want it to show completion of my love, the end goal will always be that what I do to you is going through you. That when I can look at your life and see a light shining, not only to you, but through you in such a way that the people around you are impacted, that's what I set out to do. That was my plan from the beginning. And if you're not obedient... So this isn't just a love your neighbor kind of obedience. But if you're not obedient in letting the testimony I've given to you shine through you, there's still work to be done. There's still people to be impacted. What's he asking you to let shine through you? What's he doing that he wants to impact others?
Last but not least, last part of verse 5 into verse 6. And by this we may know that we are in him. Over 40 times, actually 45 times in the Gospel of John, and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you see this kind of language, in him, know him, uh, this relational oneness with God, that he is in us, that we are in him. This is just a huge emphasis for the writer John, the Apostle John. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, (laughs) we can complicate Christianity all day long. We can look back with hindsight, revisionist, history kind of eyeglasses and say, well, this is the picture of Christianity that we want to paint for humanity. But like, if you just go back to his ministry, what did Jesus, his basic call to people, what was it? Follow me. Follow me. Leave what you're doing. And follow me. So you're going to walk the way that he walked. Last thing we see. Those who abide continually obey. Those who abide continually obey. So continually being the key word here. See, in first century, there was the heresy that many of us know as Gnosticism, right? Um, there was specifically docetism, which was kind of an offshoot of this that the Ephesus church was uh, dealing with. But in general, this huge heresy that if you read through the New Testament, and particularly outside of the Gospels, as years pass on, there was this um, false teaching that influenced almost every part of it. You read like Colossians, it's a huge part of the context of Colossians. But Gnosticism was this belief that you can have a relationship with God, simply by knowledge. So there are different levels. There are greater levels of knowledge, and the more you know, the better you are off with God, right? So it's all about what you know. It's all about higher revelation, greater revelation. And so the emphasis of actually like physically obeying him, like walking with him, eh, not so much there. But for the spiritually elite, they can be good with God. Everyone else, eh, not so much. That's not a very fun. <laughs> that's not a very fun heresy because most people can't can't attain what only the few elite can. And so John, writing all this stuff in view of these things, is refuting that salvation, that a relationship with Jesus, is not just some mystical, super spiritual uh, experience for an elite few. And when we see the word abide, we think of living in him. We, we live in him. But it's important because he says, in him and abide, those are two different words for essentially the same thing. Now, in him simply means salvation. So by this, we may know that we are saved, that we have a relationship with him. And it says, then whoever says he, and this is another word for this, but it's abide. And the word actually means to remain in him, to remain, to continue in him. So he's saying, John's saying, if you want to know that you are saved, it means you actually continually follow him. Not just like one time, and then you coast for the rest of your life, but like daily, you've got an ongoing, obedient relationship with him. This is more than just an ultra-spiritual experience. You see, through the cross through the death and resurrection, through Jesus' obedience, you and I can have God dwelling in us. 
But the flip side is through our obedience, we dwell in him. Does that make sense? So scripture lays it out that we are to be one with God. That's the beauty of salvation, that we are in this intimate relationship that we call abiding or knowing him or whatever. It's not just knowing about him. It's, it's this intimate relationship, but it's twofold. And it's built on the obedience of two different people, Jesus and you. Again, it's because of what Jesus obeyed through the cross and resurrection that God and his Holy Spirit dwell in you. But if you as a Christian want to say, man, I have been abiding in Jesus, well, that's based on your own obedience to him. So it's a two-way street of responsibility. You can't do what he did, but on the flip side, ain't nobody in this room going to be able to make you do what only you can do. You got to choose to actually continually obey and follow. Listen, it's easy for people over and over and over to say, you know what, man, if we can't, if we can't figure it out, if we can't be perfect, then why even, why even put an emphasis on obedience? And we've talked a lot about this tonight, but I'll just say one more thing about it. When your highs are high and your lows are low, it's all meant to show you and point you to the fact that your highs, your obedient, obedient, obedient times are never as obedient as Jesus. But your lows are never so low that the obedience of Jesus doesn't cover you. And so your obedience is never meant to be self-serving. It's never meant to put the focus on you. That's the opposite of Christianity. Your obedience, whether good or bad, whether perfect or completely broken at times, is meant to show you, like, I can't do this like Jesus can do this. And then again, through that praise of him, you are compelled to keep on walking to keep on reflecting him. There's going to be a million times, you know it and I know it, that you're going to fall down, that you're going to benefit, that you're going to make mistakes. What John's saying is, it's not a sign of being a Christian or non-believer based on whether you fall. The fall is the given. But it's those who get back up and keep following Jesus. Who keep saying, you know what? I know I can't do this alone. I'm just going to, I'm just going to depend on him a little bit more. I'm just going to press into him a little bit more. I'm just going to enjoy the fact that even at my worst, his love doesn't fail. It doesn't change. I'm going to enjoy that even on my worst day, I'm still covered by the grace of God. That's going to compel me to keep on walking. So if you have that mindset as a Christian, you won't find yourself insecure or disheartened. You'll find yourself realizing that, man, on my worst day or my best day, when it comes to obedience, I'm covered. I'm going to press into Jesus even more, and it's going to compel me to keep on walking further and further and further. I can't lose. I can't screw this up. Because his obedience is not only the foundation of your obedience, it covers all of your good or bad behavior. It changes everything. I think sometimes obedience gets a bad rap. Then I read things like in Psalm 119, where the psalmist says that I delight in the law of the Lord. And then he says after that, God, give me life. And you read over and over, God, I love your precepts. I delight in your decrees. And yet, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we say, man, you guys, it just seemed like you had to do a bunch of rules and regulations. It didn't seem very fun. And yet, those who were actually in it 
found that there is life in obedience. It is not a burden tacked on to salvation. It is life. It is enjoyment. Tara and I, we found so much life in obedience over the years that even early on in our church planting uh, years, whether it be Utah or Nebraska, even in Virginia, we told ourselves over and over and over this when it came to moving to a new place to to do something new, whatever. We we told ourselves this. Man, it's hard to know what God's telling us to do, but we do know this. As tempting as it might be to just go home and be with family and friends, it is better to be 15, 20 hours away from God in a place where you might not want to be with people that don't really want you there, with folks that you don't really know. It's better to be there and be with God than to go somewhere comfortable on your own terms. How do you get that kind of knowledge? How do you get that kind of desire? You get it by tasting There is a life in obedience. There's a whole group of Christians all throughout this world who say, well, I'm going to enter, as we know, through the door of Christianity by faith. And we say, yeah, you can't come any other way. It's by grace you're saved, it's through faith. But they miss out on the life that's in Christ because they don't take obedience seriously. They say it ain't about rules, it's about a relationship. And Jesus says, in order to have the relationship, you got to obey. You don't get into any relationship without some obedience. So what's God calling you to be obedient in tonight that maybe you've been struggling with? Maybe something you've been torn up with inside for a long time. Whatever it is, I can guarantee you this. We love because he first loved. We are obedient because he was first obedient. And he ain't ever going to ask you to do something that his Holy Spirit's unwilling to empower you to do. So he has given you himself to empower you to do whatever he has asked you to do. Let's pray.